J-Cut, and this is The K-Cut, your favorite podcasters who talk cinema. I'm James. I'm a content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Preferred State podcast, and I am also a writer for Films Fatale. I'm Rachel. I'm also a writer for Films Fatale, and my favorite films are classic Hollywood and international cinema. Hello, uh, this is Andreas. I also love international cinema, but I uh, also love art house of any sort. Uh, but I also just generally like films in general. I am the uh, creator of Films Fatale and uh, one of the primary writers. And it's that time of the month, folks. It's uh, cinematic smorgasbord time. So Best time of the month for the show. It, it is. It, we've almost done this for an entire year because I think we only started uh, cinematic smorgasbord in our f- second or third month. So we're, we're getting around. We're almost a year of this series. So if you have been uh, tuned in this entire time... Thank you so much. Uh, We hope you're in for a fantastic episode. We think so. Um, If not, let me give you the rundown. So, Cinematic Smorgasbord happens the first Tuesday of every single month. What happens is, we've just given you our preferred cinematic tastes. James likes uh, shoestring budget indie films. Rachel likes uh, the golden age. I like some weird crap. So... What we do is we offer films that neither of us have seen before. So we go around and we, uh, let's say, uh, I'll give Rachel a film to watch that she's never seen. She'll give one to James, et cetera, et cetera. Furthermore, we do like some sort of a book club thing where we invite you to watch a film that all three of us have not seen. And that is the communal pick. So uh, that's going to be in the second half of this episode. Uh, that uh, that film was Disco Dancer. So uh, tune into that if you want to hear some very interesting thoughts about a very interesting th- film. So first and foremost, I gave a film to Rachel to watch. Rachel gave one to James to watch. And James gave me a film to watch. So let's... Go one by one. Who saw what? Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Uh, what did I uh, get you to watch, and was it good? You got me The Double Life of Veronique, which was from 1991, and it did very well at Cannes. I can't pronounce the director's last name. Can you throw it my way? Kieslowski? That's what how I... Okay. I think that's how it's pronounced, but uh, you're, I, I kind of tend, I kind of tend to you for the, for the language stuff, Rachel. So I'm trying my best. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Okay. My grass with Polish is pretty iffy, but anyway, it is a film where the concept is, or should I spoil the concept? No, I don't think I will. Um, it's about two women and there's a connection between their stories, but I will not spoil how. It's very beautifully lit, I find, and the lead performance by the actress who plays both women is fascinating. I thought it was going to be kind of a sliding doors concept where it was two different versions of the same women, but it's not. So going into it, I thought, huh, this isn't very well differentiated. I wonder why. And so it took some time to grow on me, but I really wound up enjoying it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that you bring up the whole sliding doors concept because Kieslowski always makes his environment one of the major characters of the film. So if you see uh, Decalogue, for instance, one of the only uh, ongoing elements is the fact that they all live within this same complex, or uh, the, the Three Colors trilogy all takes place within France. So the double life of Veronique, um, what you're looking at here are uh, kind of parallels, because they parallel uh, in, a, in a more literal uh 
met or in a more metaphorical sense, as opposed to something more like a persona or a Mulholland Drive. And they're very different people in different situations, even though they have some commonalities. Exactly. You're looking at uh, different times. So you're looking at the 60s and the 90s, but you're looking at 60s, uh, a 60s Poland, and you're also looking at a modern day France. So um, without giving away too much, obviously, because I, I, I would rather not, the less you know about this, the better. It's one of those films where, first off, it's my all-time favorite film of the 90s. So um, I, I was very happy to share that with, with, you, with, uh, with the both of you. Um, I love the fact that I can't really place a specific idea or thought on this film. Like, it's almost like it's going for something, again, like Persona, but it ends up being more like a tree of life where you just get mm-hmm. caught up in this whirlwind of of uh, analogy and of symbolism and of spirituality. And unlike anything else by Kiyosawski and his prime and his iconic uh, later years, you can't really specify what this is entirely meant to represent. But at the same time, that's almost nice being carried away by him at his, at his least uh, communicative, let's say. You're right. It's very opaque as a movie. And that's why I'm finding it hard to describe because I can't really tell you all that much that happened, even though I know I saw the movie. Yeah. In one sense, you're getting kind, you're kind of getting two tales that uh, the tale of somebody who's got, uh, what seems like a better life and somebody else who uh, is trying to make the most of her situation. Uh, both of them are um, given the cards of fate, uh, whatever that might be, uh, fortunate or unfortunate. Um, it's just the capturing of life on a whim almost. And the common theme of music runs so deeply through that movie. And speaking of music, uh, Arin Jacob, who uh, plays uh, both both lead characters, as you as you mentioned, um just what a what a voice Good, goodness gracious like the, the voice of an angel and i i'm not surprised even though she doesn't sing in this film i'm not surprised that kiyosowski brought her back for his uh his final film his swan song on um, uh rouge red of the three colors trilogy because uh in this in this film alone like even having two of her is just not enough because her uh, her presence is just so so graceful, so powerful at the same time. Yes, yeah, she absolutely deserved to be the focal point. Yeah, that voice, like you said. Jeez. The tragic thing is, with that haircut in the first half and with the name Veronique or Veronica, all I could think of was Winona Ryder and Heathers. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is... Uh... <laughs> That's that's great. That's not a bad thing, though. Because uh, first off, for, shout outs to Heather's, which is a, a completely different film, but also a fantastic one. So uh, I want to see the crossover. <laughs> the, uh, which uh, I think in our chat, I think I called it the uh, the quadruple life of Veronique having to be a Heather. <laughs> so uh, there, there you go. Uh, I don't recall, James. Did you get around to this film or? Um... Yes, I did. Okay, what did you think? I actually really enjoyed it. I liked how elegant it was for being a more spiritual piece. But one thing I want to highlight, and not to give too much away, I liked the use of puppetry in the narrative. Mm-hmm. mainly because it's not used as a gimmick in hard plot device like in being John Malkovich. It's more of an allegory that kind of ties everything together once you kind of get, you get kind of a reveal at the end, but not really that kind of ties the two characters together or the two women together even more. 
I, I like its use of this sense of each character not knowing whether or not they control their own existence. I'm not sure if you guys picked up on that, but with the second and third acts with the main character and the supporting actor, it's this sense of someone's pulling the strings and speaking of string, I'm not going to give away what it is. There is a string. I'm not going to say what it is though, but that was actually a really interesting thing. It, It was almost like, it's almost like Chunking Express, how they have those two gimmicks of the canned pineapple and then California Dreamin'. Yeah, it does have a lot in common with Chunking. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. subtle, but it's really powerful because it's literally the one thing that kind of holds everything together. Like, without certain small elements, it just doesn't work. Also, just, uh, you know, I think I read, because she won an award. Khan, Best Actress. Yeah. Because that, that is by far one of the best performances I've just seen in general. Like, she just embodied that performance so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. It's hard to believe, it was hard to believe that that was, like, early 90s film. Yeah. I'm not sure. It, it, it once seemed older and more modern. Yeah, I, I don't even uh, know how to describe that, but it did. It also didn't date itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, like, the rustic metallic look. Which that that's another thing I love about it before we move on. Um, the Three Colors trilogy, which is also fantastically well shot. Um, you've got red, blue, and white. But even within those films, like blue will have a little bit of red or whatever. Little in general, never mind in Kieslowski's canon, but little in general, do you find a film that's like like a like a rustic gold with like a like a like a rusty green. Like that's what this film felt like. It almost felt like, like an aged artifact yet really pristine and like well shot and great depth and crazy angles and use of lenses at the same time. So it's as, like you said, Rachel, as old and rural looking as it is just uh, futuristic and progressive. Like it's just, it's such an enigmatic film visually. It absolutely is. Like you said, it's really hard to pin it down. All right. So uh, since uh, you went first, what did you assign James, Rachel? I assigned him Some Like It Hot, which is an all-time comedy classic. So I thought at the very least you would have some fun, James. What do you think? I did have fun. I do want to preface this saying that looking looking further into the creators of the film, this is actually not my first film I've seen of Billy Wilder and Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah? I actually, years ago, saw The Seven-Year Itch. Such a good one. Yeah, it was a really good one. So this one, one thing we can be thankful for is how silly older comedies can be and how subtle they can be. Like, this isn't an outrageously complex film, or and it doesn't rely on a lot of gimmicks or, like, shock humor, which obviously shock humor wouldn't happen very much back then. So for those who don't know, Some Like I Had is the story of two musicians. They're jazz musicians, and they're barely getting by, taking whatever gives they can. You know, if they get money, you know, one wants to actually spend it on bills. The other wants to take it to the dog racing track. And they get tipped off about a job, but they can't get the job because they don't qualify, mainly due to the fact that it's an all-women's band. And obviously, they're men. And they end up witnessing a crime... <laughs> which has them on the run. And the only way to escape is to pose as women and join this band. That's right. It, it's, I was like, Oh, here we go. It's, it's this classic old school comedy where, you know, just, you know, posing as someone else to get somewhere else. And they obviously along the way run into Marilyn Monroe's character, uh, sugar, who she gives herself the last name Kane, like as in sugar Kane. And, uh, she actually plays ukulele and sings for this band. It's really funny because 
when they get to the destination where they're playing, you know, obviously the both men show interest in her, but the character of Joe, who goes by Josephine, ends up falling in love with her. And he actually plays this gimmick because they're they're at a place where there's like a bunch of rich, high class people. So he poses as a rich person to try to get her all while (laughs) his buddy, Jerry, who goes by Daphne as a woman, ends up getting involved with this actual millionaire there, even though she has no idea that that uh, she is actually a he. And then along the way, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, their interaction having to be careful, make sure they don't do their identities. And then the criminals actually find them. And then they have to try to escape. And just all along the way, I was watching this. I was like, why does this seem so familiar? Then I remembered, oh, what early 2000s hit movie played with this idea? White Chicks. Mm -hmm. And in further researching, when the Wayne brothers were discussing coming up with this story, they said it was that movie that solidified for them that they could actually pull it off. And I was like, oh, no wonder there's so many similarities. Yeah, I think just overall, it's just... It's just an overall fun film. It doesn't take itself too seriously. And I, I think one thing I'm learning to appreciate about classic era is just kind of how glossy the presence is. Yes, it is. Like film films are films back then were obviously intended to be an escape. And it's funny because uh, during an interview I did for a podcast that I'm not going to reveal yet because the episode isn't coming out yet. I made the mistake of saying that I didn't really get into classic film because i didn't feel like it there just was, weren't emotional enough for me and then i realized that doesn't make sense because it's not supposed to be real like this situation is obviously just a kooky situation that you know nobody would ever really get into but just see how all of it plays out and just i think what's also missing from comedy now is is just being quick-witted as opposed to just kind of coming off as snarky as a lot of comedies do. Like a lot of comedies come off quippy and inauthentic with their humor, but this one just nails it. And I think it's just because of how simple it had to be. Yeah. And that ending, Oh my God. Like (laughs) the ending is absolutely hilarious, especially the final frames. Yeah. Also Marilyn Monroe. It's like, it's understandable why she was such a star, Mm -hmm. you know, just gone from the world too soon. Cause she's just every bit as glamorous, even though she's, Playing kind of a burnout character who, you know, family wants to cut her off. She just falls for the wrong guy all the time, is trying to drink all the time, even though, you know, the band leader doesn't allow it. Yeah, I just, I just think, you know, it was just an overall fun film. I, I didn't really expect to have this much fun, but I definitely had a good time. I'm glad. Um, did you know it was banned in certain parts of the United States when it was first released? Really? Why? Yeah. As we've discussed on previous Smorgasbords, 1959, for some reason, was a year when many controversial films came out, and this apparently was one of them. I, You know, I can kind of understand that, being that, you know, men posing as women, I mean, there are certain periods of time where the general public isn't so nice about that kind of thing. Well, especially back then, some liked it hot, some didn't, I guess. <laughs> and there's a lot of gay and bi subtext if if you're watching. <laughs> oh, oh, especially yes. at the very end. Yeah, well, that's the most obvious, but yeah. Yeah, it's um I also love that uh <laughs> the title was said in the movie. Mm-hmm. That always kills me whenever they say it cuz as soon as it was like some like it hot but I don't and I was just like, yep. There it is. I knew somebody had to say it. Do you have anything to say about it, Andreas? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh Billy Wilder um if I had to pick like filmmakers who uh direct and write their films, he'd have to be one of the greatest of all time. 
And uh, I, I do prefer a few other films of his, uh, particularly um, uh, Double Indemnity is one. Sunset Boulevard, I think, is his magnum opus. But uh, yeah, James, if you're not too too familiar with uh, Billy Wilder outside of uh, the two films that you mentioned, he's done a lot of fantastic series stuff as well. And I feel like something that also gets downplayed, because we're discussing all of the fun of Some Like It Hot, and it is for sure one of the greatest comedies of all time, but there's still a very serious side to it as well, particularly like the noir undertones of uh, a literal gunplay and uh, the criminal underworld that's like basically after them. So there yeah. is like a legitimate danger in this as well. There is a really interesting counterpoint with that because some scenes seemed even a bit too much for it to be a comedy. And I was like, wow, this got dark really fast, but it did it effortlessly. It wasn't forced. I wasn't expecting it to play out like that, though. Yeah, it never lost its overall comic tone. It still keeps up that really quick pace. It, and, you know, there's danger, but it's never serious, serious danger. Right. It's uh, it's serious enough. And I, I feel like that's something that a lot of comedies really downplay. It's serious enough that you still feel something. Because in some films, like, let's say... Uh, the Martian, which I hope I'm not stepping on any toes. I not for one second thought that anything was going to go wrong because it was just too light. I kind of believed that everything was going to be okay at the end. It's a fun film, but like when it tries to play its daring card, I, I don't feel a thing. But in this film, it's a little bit different, even though it's set during the time when the Hollywood code was still prevalent and you know it's going to have a Hollywood ending. Still for a microsecond, I'm like, damn, they may die. It's like, it just, it plays its card really well. Howard Hawks taught all his actors that comedy, first of all, has to be serious. Well, Howard Hawks, like Billy Wilder, uh, Howard Hawks is one of the greats. So uh, I couldn't agree more. So that's uh, some like it hot. Uh, uh, let's uh, move on to the next one. So James, what did you, what did you give me? Which sounds really stupid to ask because like, I, I know what you gave me, but for the listeners at home, <laughs> uh, what did you give me in terms of what film recommendation? So I decided to keep in line with giving you something really interesting to keep you on your toes. I gave you Coherence, which is an American surreal science fiction psychological thriller. And it's a micro budget film with a figure of about 50 grand. And uh, yeah, it's also it's like a big Twilight Zone episode is another reason yes. I picked it. Pretty much. Yeah. Yes. Which speaking of Twilight Zone, uh, I don't want to go too, too into it right now, but uh, for a second, it was reminding me of one episode, and I'll get into that when I explain the plot. So here we have a very basic dinner, a very basic, uh, you know, get together with friends and loved ones. And uh, I've done a number of uh, indie festival reviews. And I've seen stuff shot like this and um, presented like this, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, this very basic camera structure and, uh, you know, one camera kind of like tossed on either end and edited seamlessly and, um you know, everything, everything is what was affordable. And you can only take stuff like that with a grain of salt. But, you know, after seeing something like, like Coherence, it's like, damn, you know, this is one of those instances where it's kind of like a, like a child performer where, uh, again, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Like, not every kid's going to have, like, have their chops. But considering how low budget this was and how much it felt like a lot of these other festival films that I'd seen, it still really breaks through from that mold where it's like, damn, have I been too easy on a lot of these other films? Because, like, you see something like this and it's like, I'm actually getting really engaged with the acting here or, like, with the plot structure here. So the skinny is, and I don't want to give much away because the less you know about this one, the better. 
Um, again, there's this get together with with loved ones. It's it's it's, a, it's like a reunion of sorts. You know, uh, you know how, what it's like when you're adulting. Uh, you you lose touch with your friends and you have to reconnect. So this is that reconnection. And suddenly stuff just kind of starts to go awry, including uh, power outages, which uh, are presented very ominously from the get go. So, you know, it's kind of a bit more than more than the people within the film are bargaining for. And stuff really starts to get strange. And again, I don't want to give away too much because the less you know, the better. And even if the film starts to go in the direction that you're predicting, I feel like it, it does it really well. The idea of, um, again, I don't want to say too, too much, but the idea of mirroring. And uh, with such a small budget and small capability, I feel like um, James Ward Burkett, who basically uh, did pretty much everything in this, from writing to directing to a lot of other, uh, a lot of key things, um, really knows how to work with the budget that he has. So the episode I was initially thinking of um, of the Twilight Zone is one of the greatest episodes was uh, the monsters are doing Maple Street where I was assuming yes. that was so good. Yeah. What was going on was at the hands of some external force, like they were being played. But I, I have to say I was pleasantly, pleasantly wrong. So that's all I'm going to say about that. It's, it's something more, it's something different. So in that respect, it doesn't play like a specific Twilight Zone episode. It plays like its own, which I think is really nice. Yeah, it definitely because I'd I'd known about this film for years. I just never sat down to watch it because it came out around the same time as Upstream Color, which is made for a similar budget figure. But I think the thing that impressed me was you're right how engaging it is, but how tight knit that script is, and they didn't really there really weren't any plot holes. Even though you're dealing with, and this is really spoiler, but you're kind of dealing with like parallel, you know, dimensions. It, it, it kind of has a multiverse theory element, but it does it so well to the point where you're constantly questioning things. And once you start seeing certain reveals, you're like, wait, what's this? What's that? And just to do all that with just a small cast crew and a singular location, because it takes place in one main location, which is a house. And I think that's what I love about these movies kinds of movies so much is there's such big vision even though it's a tiny film. And it's kind of funny because when I looked at the filmmaker, it turns out it's the dude and I never saw it, but he co-wrote Rango. Oh, really? Ooh. And he was a conceptual artist on the first three Pirates of the Caribbean series. Is that I knew. That's amazing. Well, uh, anybody who helped write Rango? Yeah, I'm down for that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it'd be fun because, you know, I, I th- figured that'd be your speed. And after seeing it, I think after seeing the movie Seconds kind of influenced me to give this one to you. I don't Rachel, what did you think? Because this isn't your typical wheelhouse. I really liked it. Um, I did think some plot elements maybe didn't hang well uh, for me. But overall, I really liked how little it relied on the science or the science fiction side of it. And it was so much more about the characters. Mm-hmm. And if it had gone into more detail than it did, it would have kind of ruined the movie. Actually, I I have to I have to second that notion that uh, the fact that you're seeing this, you know, these uh, these discussions which delve into arguments and like you're seeing uh, loved ones who are hoping to see each other again for the first time in a while, really starting to to really attack one another because they're going they're they're dipping into this hysteria. I feel like the fact that the actual um, sci-fi or uh, unrealistic elements are played so sparingly that you really get a chance to know these people as people, as if you're a part of this whole hysteria. Yeah, that is definitely true. 
and I and I, I think that's what I appreciate. It's not bogged down by the scientific element. The scientific element is more adjacent to the fact it's about the relationships between the characters and how they're affected by the, what's happening. Absolutely. So I think overall, all three films were uh, successes in uh, in different ways, whether it's uh, metaphorical and aesthetic, literary and hilarious, or uh, really philosophical and and down to earth. So let's let's shatter all of that with our communal film this week, which uh, James, actually you picked for all of us. And uh, what was the, uh, the insanely ridiculous yet so amazingly awesome film that you decided to pick us, pick for us rather. So background, I just happened to catch a clip of this movie on Twitter, but I picked the 1982 Indian dance film, Disco Dancer. Jimmy. And boy, was uh, it Jim- fun. Best movie. Which, uh, speaking of that, <laughs> uh, speaking of that, uh, <laughs> I was, when that song came on, before we really get into this, I was like, where in the hell have I heard this before? It's um, off of uh, off of an album by uh, by MIA. She covered it. And I was like, oh. Everybody's right on covered the- it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. And I, I, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that it was like something from, from a film like this. Like this, like that almost makes the song even better, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, I must say some of the songs in that did sound more than a little familiar. Oh, yeah, like which ones? Uh, there was one that was basically You're the One That I Want from Greece. I think it was that mm. one. And then there was Video Killed the Radio Star, but they were kind of like an homage re- redone. Okay, so that's, that's what you're saying. You're saying like they uh, mm-hmm. they sound familiar in a, in a reverse sense that they're referencing something. Yeah, so I think they were like, yeah, from those. Okay, well, uh, speaking of referencing, uh, what we have here, uh, yeah, I get a very referential film to uh, the, the disco craze that was going on. That I think it was a decade prior, because this is an 80s film, correct? Yeah, by this time, disco would have been mostly out. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see uh, the impact that it still had in other parts of the world outside of the U.S., but at the same time, this was like a, like a straight-up, uh, in, a, in a sense, straight-up Bollywood film, so... Yeah, uh, who wants to go into the uh, the plot details for this one? <laughs> so, this film is kind of, it's interesting because the lead character, his name is Jimmy, or he goes by Jimmy, and he's just a kid who loves disco, and, you know, there's a family friend that he, you know, would perform with an older adult, because it starts off when he was a kid, and he comes across this little girl who has a guitar with her. Or what I think maybe a guitar. I don't know. It had like four strings. So I don't know if it was like a ukulele or something. And then he's kind of playing around with her and her dad, who's like this wealthy jerk, like as we see in these kinds of movies, um, accuses him of stealing her guitar and like, you know, slaps his mom. And the way they shot this was like something out of it was way too epic for what it was. But and then she's arrested and then they're kind of driven out of where they were living because there is thieves. And then he vows to become a great disco star to get revenge on him, which is such a bizarre plot point. And it ends up actually happening. So it's kind of like his rise, his success. And then you know, just the troubles that come along with it. I personally liked how every now and then it kind of flipped to being a martial arts flick because yes. there are some fight scenes in here that I'm like, there's no way this is really happening there. And, you know, the plot of the sort of rising star is nothing new, but this movie just does it so well. Its energy is bouncing off the walls. It's just everything is up on that screen in enormous detail. It's awesome. Which, speaking of all of that, as uh, sloppy as the film is, and I say that with uh, with uh, with a you know much love for it, some of its shots and uses of color are 
way better than they deserve. That camel to works be. too good sometimes. Yeah. It's so it's good. Oh my god. It's interesting because the fight scenes are entertaining for one respect, but the dance scenes are legitimately choreographed better than the action scenes. So it's like they're actually like really good at times. Did you guys know this was the most popular international film ever in the Soviet Union? What? That's that's um, really interesting. Really? Any, any more info on that? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so so it by a huge margin, it is the most popular and um and so a lot of the people who have covered it are from the former Soviet countries. And it just seems this movie was a massive hit all over the place because I went to a, a YouTube video with one of the songs and all the comments were like, oh, love from Kenya. Oh, I love this so much from Argentina, like all over the world. I'm from Russia and my mom says she saw this 17 times and there was only room to stand up. And everybody was like sending out love between each other's countries through this movie. And like, if we had more movies than this, guys, we might have world peace. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. My only issue with this movie was the sound. Mm-hmm. Being a sound guy, I was just like, oh, yeah, the full but then VR. I had to remember, well, I had to remember international film didn't have the money of America, mm-hmm. especially in India. I mean, they did what they could. But all I know is with this film, Baz Luhrmann wishes he could be this extra because there are some things here. I'm like, no, not even him, not even he could pull off something as big as this, even with, you know, like forget Moulin Rouge, Disco Dancer just upped the ante on how ridiculous you could be. <laughs> Just the energy, my God. Like it's it's ridiculous, but it's like it's like amazingly ridiculous. Like uh like a Phantom of the Paradise, which is one of my all-time favorite films. And I can understand if a lot of people don't agree, but in that same breath, I could understand if like that like that one uh like those people you were talking about, if this was your favorite film or one of your favorite films, because it's so it's so out there, but at the same time, it's just so badass. Yeah, it, it it doesn't. It's not even like a so bad it's good. It's like it's not even really bad. It's just limited by like maybe budget things. Just because all all the actors were great, dancing was great, soundtrack would have been amazing if it was you know sounded a bit better. Because there are some points where I was like, this sounds really awkward, but I don't know, just. And I can understand why it got so popular because it's the kind of movie that you could show to anybody and they would find something in it. With uh, this kind of enduring legacy, I guess we could wrap up by saying, um, if you want to be a disco dancer, uh, this film proves that you just uh, keep that dream alive and one day you will become that. So, uh, And it, uh, it predicted the, um, the revival of disco that would come later. Disco will never die. <laughs> That's all you need to know it about really that. Uh, thanks to the, especially thanks to the click track. If you're as long as we're going four four and we've got those hi hats and everything, there's a little bit of disco in everything. So uh, the people who hate disco, sorry, but it's kind of true. So nonetheless, uh, before we lose our our audience here, um, what we do in our cinematic smorgasbord episodes is we actually instead of giving our random weekly recommendations, we start to discuss what we're going to be watching for next month. So we've got some time to prep and you could join us. And uh, before we do that, you could also join us on our socials. Right. So we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K cut. And we like to post little bits of film trivia, stuff like that. So just follow us there and see what's coming up. Fantastic. So uh, shall we go in the same order of reveal? Uh, So Rachel, do you want to, what film are you going to get first? 
So it's your turn, Andreas. And gosh, you're hard to pick films for because you have seen everything. But I know you mentioned a while ago that you haven't seen this. So I'm hoping you haven't watched it in the meantime. And that is David Lean's Summertime, which he picked as his own personal favorite of his collection. So I have not seen that. I never got around to it. it. That is awesome. I am a very, very, very big fan of David Lean's. But admittedly, I've only seen a lot of what everybody else has seen. So um, Lords of Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai, Brief Encounter. I've seen like a couple of other things, but I would love to see some of his under his under discussed stuff like this. So brilliant. I'm excited. Great. So what's yours for James? All right, James. Uh, All right, give it to me. <laughs> All right. So uh, picking for you was really hard because it's like, do I try and play into your indie, your your love for indie films and what I can give to you in that sense? Or do I try and open your eyes into the whole whole landscape of cinematic history and art house and stuff? And I'm kind of feeling the latter. So how familiar with Ingmar Bergman are you? I haven't seen a single film of his, but I have the box set. Okay, well, I'm going to get you to... to, uh, I'm going to put that box up to good use for you. Uh, I don't really want to go too on the nose, but at the same time, should I? Should I just go with the bare basics, uh, Rachel? Do it. Okay. Uh, um, should I go postmodern or classic, Rachel? Go with your heart, Andreas. Okay. Well, since it's uh, my all-time favorite film, uh, I'm going to give you Persona by Ingmar Bergman. Uh, For the listeners at home, the other options would have been The Seventh Seal, which was the classic option, or the initial one I was going to go with, which is um, Through a a Glass Darkly, which is also a fantastic film. So, uh, no. Instead, you're going to go with Persona, which is a a postmodern masterpiece. And again, it's my all-time favorite film. So, I hope you like it, James. Awesome. You know, I've been meaning to crack it open because I think I've had it for two years now, <laughs> to be honest. And I just haven't sat down and dude, watched any of it. Dude, it, you're sitting on a gold mine. I know, because it's like a whole the whole collection. <clears throat> All right. So I guess it's my turn to assign a film, huh? I guess I'm the guinea pig. Okay, so I guess I have two things to preface this with. One, my favorite part about making selections for you guys is I somehow effortlessly find films that are within my realm, but still appeal to things you're into. I don't know how I did it. Like Rachel, you said your favorite individual pick has been um, cannibal so far, right? Yes. That was great. Yeah. It's like, Oh, low budget, like weird film, but it's a musical. So I gave that or like Andreas, when I gave you, when I give you things like the poor and hungry or George Washington, these kind of mm-hmm. like more spiritual films, now, the second thing is, it's also sometimes difficult to pick for you guys because being in Canada, for some reason, geo-blocking is awful sometimes. Mm-hmm. As we've learned, as we learned during Oscar time, when I had access to so many more movies. Now, I had actually watched a film that I've been meaning to watch, but I could never find it anywhere except for overpriced DVDs because for some reason, it's just not really being distributed. But this one, I actually happened to find it on YouTube and it's on archive.org. So... It's available, but I'm going to give you Greg Araki's 1999 film, Splendor. All right. I've heard about this, but I have not seen it, so this should be good. And I know how much you love Araki. Yes, and I'm giving it to you mainly because it's his take on a screwball comedy. <gasps> mm. I'm, I'm, I'm sold. 
I'm so sorry in my movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll tell you this. It's about a, a young girl in her mid-20s who's trying to be an actress. And it has a cliche thing for where she f- falls for two guys. But she ends up in an open relationship with both of these guys. Okay. So it's a little bit more boundary pushing than the screwball comedies of back then. And it's also probably his most tame film. Actually, it's probably the most wholesome film he's ever done. Usually it's his films are pretty intense. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's fun. It's definitely it's not the most amazing film, but seeing someone take on a genre like that and put their own spin on it is definitely interesting. And yeah, I don't know. I, I hope you'll enjoy it. I mean, I, d- I definitely try to pick things everyone enjoys. I mean, I, I know I'm a hit with the the collective picks, except for uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man. Yeah, we won't repeat that one. <laughs> Fantastic. And speaking of the collective picks or the communal picks, whichever you prefer, uh, this time around, Rachel, uh, you selected one for us. So That's what right. are we watching? So um, bringing you back in time to the 1940s, um, we are going to be looking at Ida Lupino's Never Fear. 1940. Yeah. Oh, what, what? Oh, never fear. Okay, sorry. Never. So all I know about this Ooh. film is that it's about polio and that it was partially inspired by Lupino's own existence. I've always um, admired Lupino as a filmmaker, and I am really interested as to how she brings her story to life. Uh, from what I gather, this is not your typical Hollywood movie, so we'll see. Hmm. This is a very I'm interesting intrigued. one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like this is a, this is a good one. I like this. Uh, the Hitchhiker, by the way, is uh, a brilliant film from the golden age of Hollywood. So uh, I've seen a little bit of her stuff before. So um, I'm excited to see more. Alrighty, I'm ready. This is gonna be exciting. It'll also be a. Uh, it'll also be our first 2022 smorgasbord. It will be. Yeah, uh, January 3rd, I think it it'll premiere. Fantastic. Well. Uh, right after New Year's, actually. So it looks like uh, I might be I might be watching some some classic Hollywood when that ball drops. Because what what better can you do? We all know next year's is not going to be uh, not going to be great. Let's not recycle that. Let's let's start off twenty twenty two with a bang. It's a golden age of Hollywood. So uh, nonetheless, thank you for listening to uh, Cinematic Smorgasbord and the K Cut with us. Uh, tune in next week for the K Cut. Some more K Cut goodness. And tune in uh, early January for a cinematic smorgasbord. So you're going to be watching Never Fear. So thank you so much. And that was the K-Cut. We are going into the L-Cut. Bye.